This episode of Into the Wild is sponsored by Leica Sport Optics. It's well known and proven that connecting with wildlife and nature can improve your overall well-being. So why would you not want to turn it up a notch by getting to see things even closer and clearer with a set of binoculars? It's what I have done and I have not looked back. I can't recommend enough checking out the range of optics that Leica have to offer. A great range of kit with superb optics and they even have payment plans if you don't have the cash up front. I wouldn't shout about a company on the show that I haven't used or been impressed by, and it's important to me that companies we are partnered with have the same values as Into the Wild, which is why I'm proud to give them five thumbs up. If you want to check out more of Leica's range, then visit their website that can be found in the write-up of this episode. And now, on with the show. Hello everyone and welcome to Into the Wild, your weekly podcast all about wildlife, conservation and nature. I'm your host, Ryan Dalton. Thanks for clicking play on the pod. Nerds, I have just this minute got back in the door from a seven and a half hour journey back from the Isle of Bute in Scotland uh, for a lovely gathering with some beautiful people. So sorry if my voice is a bit croaky. There's been a lot of talking, a lot of lovely chat, wholesomeness, a bit of drinking. Um, did some cold water swimming, which was horrible, but I hate to admit it's getting easier to do it. But I've had a lovely weekend is my point. Went for a lovely walk around some of the coastal paths, saw some nice scat from some otters, saw some new shrooms. It was absolutely beautiful. Um, so I'm going to do a super quick intro. Intro, can't even talk. Lost the ability to talk. Because uh, as you can imagine, I'm quite tired. But welcome to the show. Lovely to have you here. This week's episode is a bit of a heavy topic. It's a topic that is constantly being spoke about, not necessarily on the big media platforms like the news, but it is being spoken about a lot within our, let's say, environmental bubble, and that is the climate crisis. Now, I've got someone on the show who's been putting themselves forward as a scientist uh, to stand up for the issues around the world with the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis, um, but specifically to talk about how the biodiversity aspect and the conservation of nature, um, how that area can't really move forward unless you involve the climate crisis and the challenges that brings with it as well. And this person is Dr. Charlie Gardner. Charlie and I had a lovely chat and it did, you know what, I really did like a bit of this episode where we spoke a bit about our emotions to do, like mine and Charlie's personal emotions to do with the climate crisis, how we deal with that day to day. So a little bit of eco-anxiety talk. Um, but really spoke a lot, like I said, about how these two things are strongly connected and they can't move forward without the other. I will say, if you do suffer from eco-anxiety, if the climate crisis does scare the out of you, which I'd imagine it does, and that is something that you might not need in your life as a topic of discussion today or whenever you're listening to this, don't feel bad if you need to come back to this episode. It's a really good fun chat. We keep it light, but obviously we're talking about very real scary stuff as well. But nevertheless, Please welcome this lovely show, Conservation and the Climate Crisis, with Dr. Charlie Gardner. Charlie, welcome to Into the Wild. Lovely to have you here. How has your day been? It's uh, it's great to be with you, Ryan. Thanks for the invitation. I've had a uh, slightly unproductive day, unfortunately, but I did manage to get outside. <laughs> for a Monday. I did manage to get outside, away from the computer and into the sunshine, so that was quite nice, you know. Nice. It was a lovely autumnal day today, wasn't it? We've had a few of them recently. Slightly um, too warm for my liking. Um, <laughs> <laughs> to be honest, to be honest, I wouldn't mind winter arriving now. I'm, I'm finding it. All Do you a know bit what though? I, yeah, I'm getting a bit weird with it because in my head it's still October. It's like beginning of October. Like so, I'm like, oh no! Th- I keep going in that mindset of that. Oh, it's normal. It'll get. And I'm like, oh, no, wait a minute. It's need December. It should be like four degrees yeah i, I should be well into my now. i should be well into my winter plumage by now but i'm still on my <laughs> on my summer coat so <laughs> you're beach body ready in january that's not normal <laughs> scary stuff um well very on topic with what we're going to be talking about today but before we jump into that charlie do you want to tell everyone who you are and what you do so yeah i'm a, a conservationist and i well I've, I've been ever since i was really really young all i've wanted to do was was have some impact on on, on saving wildlife on mm. you know trying to slow this incredible loss of biodiversity on our planet. So I've tried to do that in various ways. I was a conservation practitioner for a long time. I worked in Mauritius, trying to save some of the world's most critically endangered bird species, the the pink pigeon and the Mauritius kestrel. 
I've done a bit of work helping manage reserves, bird reserves in the UK, but most of my conservation practice has been in Madagascar. So Madagascar is one of the world's top conservation priorities. I spent 10 years there helping um, the government and NGOs to create new parks and reserves, new protected areas that are co-managed by the communities that live in and around them. Um, and then I came back from Madagascar in, in 2015. I sort of left the coalface of conservation. And since then, I've been mm. working as a lecturer and a communicator. I worked for six years as a lecturer at the University of Kent. There's a wonderful department there called the Durrell Institute of Conservation and Ecology. Yes. So I've tried conservation practice. I've tried conservation science. Um, and over the last few years, I've been sort of shifting my career um, towards communicating these issues and and i hope one day to have as much impact as you've done in communicating these issues to, to broader audiences <laughs> and um i now actually spend most of my time in environmental activism both for the climate and the nature crisis so i hope we'll get a chance to discuss that a bit later yeah absolutely i'm really looking forward to this chat today as much i think we've both got it in our head that it could be heavy it will be heavy but let's try and keep it <laughs> Let's not let it ache our arms. Absolutely. We can carry it, but we won't get a backache from it. Um, before we go on to that, so you've, you've been outside today. you obviously a lover of the natural world, uh, natural world. So what's been your biggest nature highlight in the last seven days? So I'm, uh, I'm quite blessed. I'm lucky enough to live in West Norfolk. Norfolk is, so yeah, on the east coast of England, one of the mm. most sort of biodiverse counties in England. And on the Norfolk coast, we have huge winter congregations of wild geese the pink-footed goose yes. Dur during so they, they roost on the coast at night but during the day they're all inland um feeding on on the fields and quite often in the evenings they will fly over my house they might do it in the next 20 minutes or so and i will hear this great honking of you know these screens of <laughs> wild geese as they fly over i can hear it from my office it's just the most spectacular thing having said that most of um my nature experiences recently this autumn have been quite disturbing as we, as we were talking about today you know yes, this, this yeah. really hot autumn really has you know, it seems to be messing up quite a lot of things so i've noticed how many wildflowers are still in flower over yes. the last few days so today yeah. i thought i would count them i was only out for 45 minutes i walked along two fields I counted 23 species of wildflower in flower. In flower. We are three days <laughs> from December. And, you know, this, this, this change in, in, in weather patterns, this particularly hot autumn, just is, nature is confused. Nature you know, doesn't mm. know what's going on. And I find that really, really scary. And it's not something I think we're, we're particularly got a handle on in conservation you know we the way we monitor the loss of nature you know we we look at the distributions of species and we look at their population sizes but we're not very good at monitoring these changes that will of course end up affecting the populations every plant that's in flower now will either not be able to flower in spring or it will be less fit in spring because it's put all its energies yeah. into flowering in the autumn into now and, yeah and so you know i just think we've got we've, climate change means we've got all these you know two percent five percent drops in the fitness of different things and i just don't think we're on top of that at all so it really worries me not just that it's happening but that as you know a sector the you know, ecology and conservation and we've not got the monitoring systems in place to note this and and so that's a concern as well there's some really weird things. Like obviously, I'm in my job. I'm out about walking all day, and we've seen some really weird things. I haven't seen loads of wild. Oh, we've seen like flowers coming up where you don't usually, but then like just like buttercups or something like that. But like, but then we saw. I saw bulbs coming up. Where was that? That was when I was in Berkshire. Actually, my mum had some in the garden as well. I'm not sure what they were, but they were coming up, and and she was just like, "Oh, the bulbs!" And I was like, "It's November." I was like, "Why is that happening?" And then. Uh, uh, we were in Surrey on Saturday and we saw a pipistrelle bat flying around. Gosh. And I was like, okay, I mean, lovely to see, but also not lovely to see. <laughs> like, I wasn't prepared for that. So there's these little signs, like they are warning signs, but also I don't think we're quite recognizing them as warning signs yet. I think there's that kind of like, oh, wait a minute, no. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> going on. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about this because this is, this is going to bring us nicely 
onto what we're talking about today. Now, you've stood up and put yourself forward as a conservation scientist to fight against the climate crisis. When did you, as a conservationist, know that things for the climate weren't right? I think to some extent, I've always known, you know, we, we talked about climate change in, in the 80s, and I was aware of it as a mm. kid. I, you know, I, I used to lie awake in, in, in bed at night when I was six, seven years old, worried about tropical deforestation and climate change. And then I think I sort of, I just buried it, you know, because because yeah. it, was, it was too big and I already, I, I was already so um, yeah, heavily involved in, in, in the nature crisis. And I think I was, I was scared of the implications of, of, of climate change. I thought once mm. I really absorbed it and internalized it, it would change everything. It would change what I do as an individual, but it would also change what we do as, as conservationists. And that, it scared me. You know, it's, it's so big that I, I, I just buried it. While I was in Madagascar, I, I started to see the impacts quite, quite severely. Not, and, and actually, that wasn't the direct impacts of climate change on biodiversity, but the indirect impacts in the way it was changing people's livelihoods. So, you know, in, in, in Madagascar, most of the population is rural. People are, are farmers. And all most people want is a good bit of land so that they can farm year in, year out. And they could do that because the rainy season used to be really, really predictable. It's not predictable anymore. And that's a real problem. If you don't know when it's going to rain, then you don't know yeah. when to plant your seed. And, you know, it's it means that agriculture is not a viable livelihood anymore. And as a result, people are having to abandon agriculture and look to do other things. So they might head to the coast and become fishers, but there's already overfishing there. They might head into the forest <laughs> right, yeah. and you know, produce charcoal for, for the urban market, or they might just try and expand the amount of land they have on their agriculture, because if you're not sure you're going to get a good crop, then one insurance policy is just to cultivate much, much more land. Do more. So people head yeah. <laughs> up into the hills to carry out shifting cultivation. So, so we were already seeing the, the, the impacts of, of climate change um, worsening the existing threats that biodiversity suffers. Right. But, but even then, I still managed to put it aside to an extent and still just concentrate on traditional conservation um, approaches. It wasn't until I started lecturing that it really hit me because I was asked to teach an undergraduate module on climate change. So then, yeah, I couldn't ignore it anymore. I had to read all the science. <laughs> it's literally your job. <laughs> it was literally my job. And, and yeah, trying to absorb all this stuff, trying to read all the later stuff, it just absolutely terrified me. And, and, and since then, my focus really has been on, not just on, on what climate change means for biodiversity and for us as conservationists, mm. but also what our response should be as conservationists, both in terms of how we adapt our conservation strategies to try and save nature in the face of this rapid change, but also, you know, what can we do as scientists to help address climate change? And this brings us back to, to activism, which we'll talk about later. Now that being such a big part of your job, like I think for a lot of us with the climate crisis, it's certainly something that I think of, like you said, with the warning signs that I'm even seeing, like again, I just thought of another one. I saw some cherry blossom coming out today, and I was just like, "Oh, uh, like you know, it's a reminder." Do you you must think of it every single day? And if you do, how the hell do you cope with that? I, I don't know how well I do, to be honest, especially recently. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I don't cope with it. <laughs> I, I think, I think actually, having been so aware of the um, the nature crisis since mm. I was so young, has sort of. Not in any conscious or deliberate way, but it's just allowed me to somehow compartmentalize things. Mm, um, right, yeah. You know, think of them on a theoretical sort of abstract level and not really taking it to heart. And then so, so yeah, all, all my life I've just been aware of the continuing loss of nature. And despite all our efforts, despite how much the conservation movement has grown and, and blossomed over these last decades, we have we we you know we haven't addressed biodiversity loss. It's still ongoing, and in many places, it's becoming faster and faster. So I, I don't know. Somehow, I've just managed to plow on. 
it's been, mm. it's been harder recently because I've been trying different things and still not seeing the results. And also because as we've been talking about, you know, the impacts of climate change are just becoming so much more obvious. And when you see them yourself, yeah, that's so true. It's, it's, it's much more visceral. It's not this abstract thing that you're reading about in papers. I'm walking about and the flipping flowers are in flower in, yeah. in November. It's wrong. And I can see that. And it just feels, if it, yeah, it's, it's tough to take. I've, I've not yet started doing so, but they, I, I increasingly think I'm going to have to seek psychological support for this. And, and this is something that, that people are increasingly seeing. There's, there's a, a body called the Climate Psychology Alliance, which brings together mm. um, you know, psychologists who are specialized in dealing with this and can um, yeah, provide resources and, and, and guidance and support for, for people that are suffering these things. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm keeping it together pretty much, but I, I think I yeah. will be calling this Climate Psychology Alliance quite soon. It is so difficult. And I think anything, I mean, this summer, particularly, I was, you know, I've spoken to a lot of people one on one, especially for someone that works outdoors five days a week. This summer was the hardest summer I've ever worked in my life. Like, not just from, you know, a mental health point of view, but from my physical body, like having to put myself through that. And, there, you know, we had to stop running the business for a couple of days when it hit the 40, Oof. 41 degrees in London. And, it, you know, and then you're talking about financial loss as well. And, and we're not even coping with the worst of it. And you're like, this is like a drop in the ocean compared to what, you know, other countries are facing right now. And there was a lot, I remember some friends just messaging being, you know, knowing that I was in London, other naturalists just going like, you know, are you all right? And I was like, I feel so numb. Like, I don't feel happy. I don't feel sad. I feel like someone has just really punched me in the face, like really gone smack and it's lasted for nine weeks and i just i didn't know how to feel i was i was so upset and just walking around Hampstead heath and just seeing the, just all this yellow grass and the dust and you could and the trees just the leaves going brown and crumbling the blackberries were all burnt to a crisp and you just all this stuff that you just like like it's this is not this isn't even a warning sign now this is just this is it like it's here and I was and like you said you know I, I see a therapist and I, I was spending a lot of my therapy time talking about this and going I don't know what to do I, and you know we spoke about that going as <laughs> so you don't always have to do something but <laughs> but it was so hard and I think I share that with you it's I think many people do I think many people listening now it's how the f do you cope with that kind of oh I don't want to call it doom but with just these symptoms of climate change it's so hard yeah I'm, so, I'm sorry to hear you've been you've been suffering that too i think um i think one of the things uh, that's quite important to me is again <laughs> i'm sorry i keep bringing it up um but it, it, it's it's activism i i find yeah i find that just feeling like there is something i can channel my sort of negative energies towards is I don't know. It, it's somehow comforting because even if it turns out that it's not enough to actually, you know, address and reverse these issues, I think it's quite important mm. to me that I, I feel I've tried and and, and done what I can. And yeah. of course, we all I feel yeah, that we we all try and we all do what we can in in different ways. But I think, I think the key thing is to be doing something. I think being active rather than passive in the face of these is 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 quite important to my mental health even if it's a community feel surely even if you feel like you're with other people because sometimes it can feel so dormant and alone <laughs> in it like i think especially i mean in my bubble not everyone is as awake to it as i put myself in so sometimes just talking to people that share it can really just make you feel less alone, I think. Like, they're not to go like, why is no one else caring about this? It's like, they're, they're out there, mate. Yeah. They're out there. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. This is so important because, I don't know, it's just the weirdest thing to be so aware of it and to just observe all of the rest mm. of society just carrying on as normal. <laughs> it, can, it can make you feel like the weird one. You know, yeah. When, 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 of course, um, you know, we actually have, you, you know, two feet in, 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 in reality. But it's, yeah, it does make you feel very, very strange that everything 
can just be carrying on as normal. So to realize yeah. that you're not alone, to realize that lots of other people are also, you know, not just aware of these things, but as worried as you and yeah. as keen to do something as you, it's that that's yeah, that's another really important element of, of, of maintaining our mental health through this. Absolutely. You said about the climate crisis and biodiversity crisis have they've kind of only just really been spoken about from my observation together. You know, for a long time, like you said, since the eighties, the climate crisis or climate change or global warming, whatever we labelled it, was spoken about. But it's only recent in, you know, in the last maybe five years that the biodiversity crisis has, even if it's been aware of, that we've had more public engagement with this being matched as important as the climate crisis. Um, for you, how connected are the both? I think they're absolutely um they're two sides of the same coin. In, in fact, you know, they're 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 two different sets of symptoms of of, of the same mm. problem, really. But they are highly, yeah. highly interconnected because you know, on, on the one hand, we can't really address climate change without conservation of, of you know all our greenhouse gas emissions, about a quarter of them are absorbed by ecosystems by by yeah. plants and forests and wetlands and and soils so we can yeah we absolutely cannot minimize the worst of climate change without conserving nature but climate change is also making conserving nature much much harder because it's it's happening mm. so rapidly and it's so extreme that it is having huge impacts on the natural world so most immediately we're we're increasingly seeing impacts of extreme weather events. So there was um, just a completely crazy, mind-boggling heat wave in North America last year, the Pacific Heat Dome. It reached 49.6 degrees in Canada, in Canada, not Mexico, oh my God. Canada. The same, the same latitude as Oxford, 49.6 degrees. And they estimated that that heat wave... Killed one billion seashore animals because yeah, the sea was so freaking hot. So we Jesus Christ, you see these direct impacts like that. And sometimes when you're talking about animals with quite restricted distributions, um, yeah, particularly mm. island species, this can actually lead to extinctions. And we've seen several probable extinctions over just over the last few years as a result of yeah. climate change. So the Bahamas nuthatch hasn't been seen since 2019, when most of its habitat was flattened by a hurricane. There's the Puerto Rican pigeon, which again lost most of its habitat in Hurricane Maria in 2017. And they're saying mm. one more massive hurricane and that'll be the end of the, the Puerto Rican pigeon. In 2016, there was a small Australian mammal called the Bramble Cay Malomis. It lives only on this small island called Bramble Cay. It's only you know, three meters above sea level. So sea level rise and the encroachment of all this you know, salty water into the island is, is, is killing the vegetation on the island. And right. yeah, this, this, this small mammal was declared extinct in 2016, the first mammal to have been um, driven extinct by climate change. So we get these immediate impacts of extreme weather over um the longer term you know as conditions change in a particular place then obviously species have to react to that change they have to adapt to it and there's three main ways they could do that first is they can you know they can physically evolve they can change their physiology to, to cope with the changes but there's not much evidence that that's happening just because it's the climate is changing so so fast so there are two main ways that, that species react. One is to shift their ranges. So, you know, if you're adapted to a particular temperature band and it's getting warmer, then to stay within that temperature band, you need to move towards the poles or to higher altitude. Right. And, and this is happening. We've been, we've been noticing this happening for um for, for a couple of decades now. And of course, this has always happened. You know, take Take the UK, for example, until 12,000 years ago, all of Scotland and most of, of the north of the UK was buried under glaciers. There were glaciers a kilometre thick over Scotland. So obviously there was no biodiversity there. Everything, <laughs> every plant and animal that's in Scotland now has shifted its range northwards into Scotland over the last 12,000 years. So species mm -hmm. can shift their ranges. The problem is that 
Previously, they were doing that in an intact world, <laughs> and it's not an intact <laughs> world anymore. You know, yeah. we've put all these barriers in place, roads, agricultural fields. If you're a, a beetle that lives in semi-natural ancient woodland, then, you, you know, just 500 meters of rape fields might be an impenetrable barrier to you. You can't get to the next woodland <laughs> further north of that. So, Yeah, I can imagine that being a challenge for a beetle. <laughs> So, 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 yeah, this is a, a, a real problem. You know, climate change is simultaneously forcing species to shift their ranges, but we're at the yeah. same time we're preventing them from doing so. Maybe an even bigger worry than this is is the third way that species react to climate change is that they change their seasonality. And yeah, we were talking about this earlier. The flowers in yeah. flower now they are reacting to change conditions by changing their seasonality. And of course, we will all have noticed how spring gets earlier and earlier every year, seemingly. This is a problem because, of course, no species is, is isolated. They, they all interact with other species. But because this change affects different species in different ways, you know, some of them might be um, might base their seasonal cycles on the date of the last frost, whereas others might be based on you know, the first warm day, for example. So they have different cues and they react to different mm. speeds which means that it leads to this mismatch between them we call it phenological mismatch because yeah the term for for this changing of the seasons is is phenological change so there's this really great example of this um, well th there are lots of emerging examples but i can give you a couple um both from from the south of england our uh, oak trees obviously they come into leaf in the spring and mm -hmm. Lots of herbivorous insects try to time their emergence so that they emerge at the time when there's maximum food availability, all these oak leaves. Now, one of the main ones is the winter moth. So the, the, the winter moths try and, and time it so that their eggs hatch, the caterpillars emerge when the oak leaves are in full flush. But then, of course, our birds, the blue tits and the great tits and other things, try to time their breeding so that they, you know, the chicks are born at the time when there's this maximum availability of all these moth caterpillars. High fat food. <laughs> Indeed, yes. Probably delicious, I'm sure. And yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> the problem is, so the moths are doing quite well at keeping up with, with, with the leaves, but the birds aren't. So for every 10-day advance in the emergence of leaves, the birds are only able to advance by five days. And so... They are, you, you know, the, the chicks are, are being raised after the peak food availability. So right. this is obviously has impacts on the chicks, but it also has impacts on the oak trees because now they're getting you know, munched by all the caterpillars because <laughs> there are no predators to control the domino caterpillars. Domino effects. <laughs> so you get these domino effects. Another mm. really, really cool example is from orchids in the south of England. So there's there's a bee orchid, which is pollinated by the buffish mining bee. And the way it does that is it entices the male bees into pseudo-copulation. The orchid looks a bit like mm -hmm. a bee. It gives off these pheromones. The males want to mate with it. The problem is it's not that great at imitating a female bee. You know, it is a, a stationary <laughs> plant. Yeah. So the only reason the males mate with it is the males emerge earlier than the females. So there's this like one right. week window where there's all these horny male bees, no females to mate with. So they're all bonking all these flowers. Just like the next best thing, yeah. Absolutely. Well, I mean, what are you going to do? But yeah. the thing is, with, with warmer summers, that means the females emerge earlier. It reduces this window. Right. And then the bees, the, the bee orchids aren't getting pollinated. So this is what concerns me like the most. Ecosystems are this incredibly complex set of interactions between different species. Now, every species is shifting its range and changing its seasonality in different directions. And we just can't understand what impacts this will have on, on the functioning of those ecosystems because it's so, so complex. So we looked at one very, very simple chain of interactions between a tree, a caterpillar, and a bird, and already we're seeing huge impacts. What if you expand 
that from you know a simple chain of three species to a complex web of thousands of species of an ecosystem yeah it, yeah. it terrifies me to think what might what might yeah. be going on and so there was a really really terrifying paper that was published in nature um, two years ago which talked about this concept of abrupt ecological disruption and basically what they were saying is that given that in any ecosystem almost every species will be adapted to the same sets of conditions, right? Because they all live in this one place. Um, and that means as conditions change, they will all be pushed beyond their limits at the same time. And this could lead to abrupt ecological disruption. The idea, this very concept of abrupt ecological disruption, you know, ecosystems entirely breaking down just in a short period of time. It's a terror terrifying concept. What's worse was in this paper, it was by Christopher Tresos. In this paper, they didn't just come up with this concept. They tried to model when it might happen. And I hope everyone's sitting down because <laughs> they, they estimate that abrupt eco ecological disruption will happen in the Amazon basin in 2042. It'll happen in the Congo Basin in 2048 and in the Coral Triangle, yeah, the most diverse area of, of marine life in, in the Southern Pacific, in 2060. So I, I don't know. It's, you know, we, we, we've talked about how, you know, in the medium term future, there might be no sea ice and that will be a problem for polar bears. But it's so much more than just polar bears. This is yeah. going to be affecting every single ecosystem. And of course, it's not in the medium term either. It's incipient. It's happening already. You know, these, the, these amazing tapestries of life are starting to unravel already. And as we said before, I just don't think where we have the tools to monitor that in conservation. So we still just yeah. tend to think of, you know, we take take tropical forests, for example. We think that all we've got to do to conserve tropical forests is stop them being cut down. So we monitor them from satellites and we can say, you know, we've still got these tropical forests. But the thing is, even if we were 100% successful in stopping the deforestation of Forest X, that forest is still unraveling <laughs> because of climate yeah, change. And we just Everything within is still going off. Yeah. <laughs> and you can't monitor that from a satellite and you can't monitor that no. with camera traps or anything. So yeah, it's a real, a real um, scary prospect. I think things like that as well, because this is whenever I have these kind of conversations, I think back to like, why are more people not worried about this? Like, why is it not on people's minds? Like we said at the beginning, but I also think, I think we, we society believes that the climate crisis and biodiversity crisis is going to be, you know, when we say we're going to see this massive flop and drop in these systems in 45 years, we expect 45 years, everything to disappear. Yeah. That's what we think. That's our mentality of it. Whilst it's very quick, for our fast-living society, it's very slow. And it's very bitter a time, just disappearing and, and stuff like that. So I think that's it's trying to get that balance with a very fast-moving society, especially Western society. Mm. In fact, no, a Western society. <laughs> a very fast-moving Western society to understand that 40 years for nature and the natural world is also a very fast time and having to try and look forward and plan further forward than our society currently lets us do because until we get that balance right i don't think many people are actually going to understand the importance of what do you mean the ecosystems are collapsing everything's fine you know the plants grew fine in my garden <laughs> <laughs> that kind of mentality and i think that's no one's to blame that's just a society that western you know capitalism and kind of you know i'm not going to say all the buzzwords but you know has created to make us think but it's so hard it's so hard because like you said there's so many examples yet how do you begin to measure these and and present them yeah. when you can't even when you can't measure them Hey, sorry to interrupt the episode Nature Nerds. It's Ryan, your host here. I just want to give you a quick shout out about something. Into the Wild always aims to be a free show, accessible for everyone. However, running it is not free. If you would like to support Into the Wild and say thanks, then you can do so by visiting ko-fi.com forward slash into the wild pod. The link is in the write up of this episode. 
By doing this and buying us a coffee, you are helping the future of Into the Wild. Thanks very much and back onto the show. I, th- I think you're absolutely right. It, it, it is difficult to, to communicate these things and, and you know, particularly um, some of these more intangible impacts of climate change that we're starting mm. to, to, to see. You know, I've, I've, I've tried to, to publish a few opinion pieces in peer-reviewed conservation journals about how impactful and important climate change must be and how the conservation sector needs to work, wake up to this and, and really adapt our approaches. But I... You know, they keep getting rejected because they keep getting reviewed by people that are buried up to their eyeballs in the existing paradigm. And yeah, yeah. and this is very difficult to 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 break to break through. And I, um to be honest, I've been quite disappointed by how reluctant the conservation sector has been to wake up to the threat of climate change. To be honest, I, I mean, I understand it to an extent. I talked about how how I refuse to think about climate change for the first yeah. thirty years <laughs> yeah, point. Of, yeah. of my life. So I do understand it, and of course, as conservationists, our plates are full. You know, we we are fully fully occupied with the biodiversity crisis, and of course, the things we're trying to to do, you know, prevent habitat loss, prevent um, overharvesting of species, they are incredibly important, and. Mm. And, you know, if you work in preventing tropical deforestation, then, of course, trying to prevent tropical deforestation is the most important thing to you, and nothing could be more important to that. So the idea that actually even preventing tropical deforestation might not be enough because there's this other new emerging threat, of course, the temptation to bury your head in, in, in the sand and just keep doing what you're doing is very, very strong. You talked about... um trying to get through to broader society too, beyond you know, other mm. scientists in our sector. And I think while you're right and it's nobody's fault, it's the way our societies have been led. But having said that, I think we need to adapt our communication strategies yeah. to those realities. And I think in the climate sector in particular, we have been very bad at communicating. We have constantly talked about this being a problem for our grandkids. Let's do it for our grandkids, um, which is, it's altruistic, it's distant, it's it, it's abstract, whereas it's not for our grandkids. You know, crops are failing now. People are dying yeah. now. The heat wave yeah. that we had um, in this summer, it killed 20,000 people across Europe. You know, these are big impacts yeah, it's now. a very real threat, yeah. And... and yeah, we've also talked about it in terms of, yeah, I'll, I'll bring back to the example of, of, of polar bears. For, for a long time, polar bears were the poster child of climate change. Let's do it for the polar bears. Well, yeah, we all love polar bears. You know, I'm not going to change my entire life for polar bears. We should have been talking about this in terms of what it means for human beings, for, for, for you know, crop yeah, failure yeah. and food security yeah. and the, the people that live near the coast being unable to insure their houses quite soon and stuff like that. That's the message we need to yeah. focus on. And I, I think we've not been that good at doing that as a sector. Similarly, for conservation, you know, we've always marketed conservation on the basis of sexy species. Let's do it for the koalas and the pandas because the koalas and the pandas deserve to live. And of course they do. And everyone will agree with that. But the fact is, whilst everyone will agree with it, they're not putting their money where their mouth is. And as a result, conservation has just become this really, really peripheral, unimportant sector in society. To give you an example of that. So our main conservation strategy, obviously, is parks and reserves, protected areas. And we've done really well at creating protected areas. 15% of the Earth's land surface is set aside in parks and reserves. And of course, this is a huge achievement, right? Fantastic. And this is an under-recognized achievement of the conservation sector. But the thing is, conserving the biodiversity in those parks and reserves needs more than putting a line on a map. They need to be actively managed. And to actively manage them, we need money. The entire global spending on parks and reserves is $24.3 billion a year. $24.3 billion. It sounds like it sounds a huge amount of money. It's the same as the global market in beard grooming products. It is <laughs> in seriously. East London alone. <laughs> seriously, it is it is one third of what the world spends on ice cream. Ice cream, right? 
is apparently three times more important to global society than conserving biodiversity. And I don't know, that's not particularly surprising if people think they're just doing it for the pandas. You know, yeah. you know people yeah. will rather buy an ice cream than, than give three quids to a panda conservation charity. Of course they will. But the thing is, it's not ultimately about pandas. It's ultimately about us. We are... We're part uh, ironically about your ice cream. <laughs> 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 ironically, the one thing you're spending more money on is gonna <laughs> f off, mate. <laughs> but 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 yeah, I mean like, yeah, we're part of the natural world and we cannot survive yeah. without it. And I think we've just we've marketed conservation so badly as do it do it for the other species, do it because you're altruistic and, and these things are nice, not this is, you know, this is fundamentally about our survival on the, on this planet, and you know, not conserving ecosystems just leads to, to huge amounts of, of suffering and death. And this is actually this is another way in which, to, sorry, to come back to your old your previous question, but this is another way in which you know the climate crisis and the biodiversity crisis are highly highly interlinked. Every time we see a a climate-related extreme weather event, you know, take flooding, for example. In the north of England, we, we suffer massive winter floods you know, very regularly every, every, every couple of years. And we think this is a climate impact. This is because there was extraordinary amounts of rain. And it is. But it's also because we've deforested the hills that would previously have absorbed or the you know the woods on the hills would have previously absorbed all that rain and helped it filter down into the soil. Without the forests, it just washes off directly into the rivers. The same with you know storm surges and, and hurricane impacts. There was a massive hurricane in Florida last month. I can't remember where uh, the name of the hurricane, but the coastal communities that got most battered were those which had cleared all their mangrove forests. And you know those mangrove forests attenuate they they absorb all the energy from from the storm surges and you know, places yeah. which have mangroves were better protected so lots of the climate related disasters we see are actually not just climate related they are the product of both climate change and the loss of biodiversity so, okay so we've spoken about the implications kind of onto conservation but what does conservation need to do then to change to take the climate crisis into consideration I think actually we need to completely go back to, to, to basics and rethink what we're trying to achieve in conservation. Because conservation ultimately has been about trying to prevent change. It, it's right there in the in the name. So we 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 try to prevent the change in ecosystems. Yeah, we 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 try to seal off ecosystems from the threats to them. So we prevent change or we try to reverse change through ecological restoration, restore ecosystems yeah. back to some past desired state. But the one thing with climate change, the one key implication for conservation is that change is inevitable now. We cannot right. prevent change. And I think that's really important because it means that rather than trying to conserve a world that will no longer exist. I really think we need to accept the change will happen, but try to shape the change that happens. Yeah, so a good way to think about this is if we think about woodlands in the south mm -hmm. of England. So remember how we talked about how, how species are shifting towards the poles yeah, yeah. as a result of climate change? Well, this is going to be a bit of an issue for England, for, for the British Isles, because we're islands, right? There's a great big <laughs> channel in between, which obviously will serve as a barrier to something. Now, one thing, one, one approach that's been widely proposed in conservation is what we call assisted colonisation. So if things are shifting their ranges, but there are barriers, then maybe we should move them, physically pick them up and move them to where so they need to go. So actually move them across. Yeah, right. absolutely. But this is anathema to most conservationists. We, we dare not do it because we have such a, a history of, of invasive species resulting from, mm. from introduction. So, so we think that introducing a species is just bad. You know, what we do in conservation is we just let nature get on with it. But if we think yeah. about woodlands in the south of England, all these 
woodland species. They're moving north through Europe as well, right? So as so imagine these communities of plants and animals moving north through Europe. They get to the to the English Channel. Some of them will be able, you know, some of them with like flying seeds or the flying species, the birds and the flying insects, they will make it across no problem. And we will welcome them with open arms into our country <laughs> as natural colonizers. But yeah. lots of them just simply won't make it across. Their seeds are heavy and need to be dispersed by squirrels or, or, or whatever. So they just won't make it across. And that means if we if we look forward to, I don't know, a few decades, in the south of England, our woodland communities will be impoverished, right? Lots, lots of them will have moved north. Species will no longer live in the south of England. They'll have moved north, but they won't have been replaced by other species coming from, from further south because of the channel. And I just think the idea of not helping them across is bizarre. Why would we voluntarily choose to have only a small subsection of these communities and not introduce these other species across, which are natural components of the woodland community on the mainland? So we would be like, if we don't bring them across, we will be voluntarily choosing to have lots of fewer species in our woodlands than you would find in equivalent woodlands in, in France or Germany. And this will have big impacts on ecosystem function because, of course, woodlands are so much more than, than just habitats for birds and plants and, and, and yeah. bats. There, there are other reasons to conserve nature other than the conservation of species. Woodlands help reduce flooding they provide habitat for pollinating insects yeah as we talked about they're, they're, they're beautiful places that lots of us enjoy and that contribute to our health and mental health so you know if you're looking at a strictly wildlife conservation perspective people will say no we should not do assisted colonization in england because it won't help the survival of any species these mainland european species they're not threatened species so Assisted colonization won't help. Them, there's no them. point. No. There's, there's no point. They're not threatened. But it's not just about threatened species. It's about having functional ecosystems. That's much, much yeah, more right. important than saving every species. And I just think it would be nonsensical to stick with traditional conservation approaches and just say, no, we can't introduce things to Britain because we need functional woodlands so <laughs> so this is just an example of of how you know we have to stop looking backwards and start looking forwards and trying to to shape the world that that climate change creates rather than rather than just being passive protectors of nature i think climate change now means we have to be active promoters of nature sorry that's not the right word but but yeah i think i think we need to we need to start being interventionists now. And we need to start looking further ahead. Like I said, it's not just about year on year. It doesn't work now. We need to look on, right, so what's this going to look like in 10 years' time? Yeah. What's it going to look like in 20 years' time? And then go for that. Absolutely, absolutely. And this is really important because conservation does largely look backwards. So take the IUCN mm. Red List of Threatened Species, right? This is a, a wonderfully important resource which shows us which species are threatened. But it's based, mm. most of the criteria are based on what has happened so far, what has been happening to these species populations over the last few generations. But of course, what climate change shows is that the future won't be a reflection of the past. It's, you know, the changes are, are non-linear and, you know, the future could be radically different. So with, I, I think conservation is largely looking to the past. It, it, it's like, it's like driving along by looking in the rearview mirror only, which is fine yeah, yeah. if you know the road is dead straight. But with climate yeah. change, we know the road is not going yeah. to be straight. So we need to look forward. Yeah, that's a really good analogy. I like that. <laughs> so on that point, then, because there's been a big conversation about whether more scientists, including conservation scientists, should be joining, and you said at the beginning, the environmental movements. What's your take on this? Like, Because as someone that has joined the environmental movement and the fight for climate, crisis are you seeing more scientists across the board really actually from any sector join this or are you still seeing a lack of um, i'm going to call it compliance <laughs> um so so there has been huge growth in the number of of scientists that have been um taking part in 
mm. activists, uh, you know, climate and environmental activist movements over the last few years, and and not doing so as individuals, as citizens, but explicitly as scientists. I'm disappointed by by how many or how few rather have joined, but but certainly it, it's a, a lot more than a few years ago. And I think this is really really important because scientists are some of the most respected people in society, mm. and that means. Yeah, most people are prepared to listen to to what we have to say, which gives us some some influence. And with influence comes responsibility, I think. And there's a, I, th I think it's important that we recognise that what we do as scientists hasn't been enough to lead to the changes we need. So, you know, I, th I think many of us as scientists, well, partly we become scientists because we just love research, but partly we have this this sort of naive faith that if we generate information and make that information available, then our leaders will use that information to make wise decisions in the public good. I mean, that's a really nice way to think that the world works, it's, right? It's a lovely, lovely idea. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, you know, the biodiversity crisis and the climate crisis are, are all the evidence yeah. you need that that doesn't work. And that's because... You know, policymaking ultimately isn't about knowledge. This isn't an information deficit problem. And so I, I don't know, I think perhaps we haven't thought through our proper theories of change, but we think, right, mm -hmm. we're going to go to the government with information that climate crisis is really bad. They will listen to that and take action. We forget that while we're talking into the government's left ear, other people vested interests who've got really massive vested interest Pockets. in not changing because they're doing very, very well from the status quo, thank you very much. They're also mm. speaking in the government's right ear and saying, no, don't change. But the difference is, while we go to the government with graphs and data, these lobbyists are going to the government with vast piles of cash. So obviously, it's, it's, it's no... It's no shock to see what sort of policies get made. Even today in 2022, when we've had this heat wave, when we know all about the climate crisis, the UK government is still pushing to expand oil and gas in this country. They are pushing to remove our existing environmental legislation. We have 570 pieces of environmental legislation that were developed um, and implemented as part of our time in the EU. Now we've left the EU because of Brexit. The government wants to do away with these 570 laws and possibly not replace them with any other laws, meaning biodiversity in this country will be unprotected. So, so clearly this theory of change, that doing science is enough to lead to change, that, that's nonsense. It's incredibly yeah. naive because it's not about knowledge. It's about power and influence. So for me, activism is about trying to make ourselves more powerful and influential as scientists. It's trying to make sure our voices are heard rather than being ignored. So I think it's 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 really important that that scientists go beyond their you know, you know their day jobs beyond just writing mm. another peer-reviewed paper. But I also think it's really important in in terms of influencing the public because you know for a long time we have been saying you know things are really bad and they're going to be getting really really bad and we've said this about climate we've said this about the you know the loss of nature but then we just carried on as normal um, yeah. and i think that sends a really confusing message because we're not acting like it's the emergency we say it is. Now, um, mm -hmm. I say this all the time, but you know, if I was to tell you now that I can smell smoke coming from down the corridor and I think my house is on fire, but then was just to continue completing the recording of this podcast, of course, no one would believe me that my house is, is on fire because my actions don't match my words. And I think, I don't know, I sort of, I worry that, that there are people that are sort of subconsciously thinking, well, if, if things are as bad as all that, then the scientists would be out on the streets making a noise, but they're not, yeah. so it must be Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. So for me, for me, activism is 
when, when I take action, and and I've done this a, f- a few times, you know, in when COP twenty six was on in Glasgow last year, I took part in the 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 first ever mass arrest of scientists over the climate crisis. We 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 blocked a bridge, and and twenty of us were arrested, and it was really high profile. It was you know it was covered in Nature and 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 elsewhere, and it's easy to 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 assume that. You know, if you take an action at COP26, then that action is directed at all the delegates at COP26. But yeah, for me, it wasn't. My action was directed at the public. And for me, it's just, it's like, it's the next level of communication. <laughs> we've been talking the talk. We've been saying things are really freaking serious for a long time, and we've been ignored. So so for me, I, I don't know. I just... I've, I've tried everything for such a long time to try and communicate how serious these things are, and we're still being ignored. So for, for, for me, you know, it's an expression of how serious things are. It's acting like it's emergency. Are you ready for the hardest question? <laughs> the penultimate hardest question? <laughs> Go on, then. What, <laughs> what gives you hope? Actually, it's these environmental movements. I've never really needed hope. I've never felt that we were going to you know, get through this biodiversity crisis with much intact. But you know, that didn't matter to me. I was, it was still all I was going to, to do because it's all I know. And there's, it's you know, whether, whether we win or not, it's still worth doing. But actually, over the last few years, I have more hope than I've ever had. And, and, and that was you know, kindled in 2019 when I first saw the youth strikes for climate and, oh, sorry, 2018 rather, and Extinction Rebellion was born. I've always sort of wished the public, the broader public, would one day care as much about wildlife as, as I do. And here, there are huge mem- numbers of the public coming out onto the streets, not just coming out onto the streets, but risking their liberty, putting themselves up for arrest to try and ring the alarm about climate change and the loss of nature. And Extinction Rebellion isn't just a climate movement. It's explicitly focused on um on the loss of nature as well, these twin crises. Although the crises are much more severe than they were even four years ago, at least we're starting to see a societal response now. We're not just leaving it to climate scientists and and conservation scientists. People are taking to the streets to try and resist and try and change our course and try and ring the alarm. And I find that hugely hopeful. And the last question of the podcast, I guess to draw this... Because a lot of people are going to listen to this and then maybe have gone, oh, Um, but if you could advise people or recommend something to try and get people to connect with wildlife, nature or the environment, what would you say to people? Since lockdown, actually, I have been spending a lot more time in nature. I think that's the case for a lot of people. A lot of people realised how important green spaces were were to to their mental health. Um, And I've always, I mean, I've always done quite a lot of walking. And always loved it, of course. But when I've just been walking through a landscape, just looking about, I, I felt slightly passive, like I'm just slightly walking through it. Over yeah. the last year and a half, I've started keeping a nature diary. So I don't just go for a walk every day. I take notes as well. And this has transformed like my appreciation of, of the landscapes I walk through. Because for one thing, it makes me observe that much more keenly mm. because I'm looking for something to to uh, I can write in my diary when I get home. I don't yeah. I don't want to just be saying the same things over and over. So I'm really looking, and um, so it makes me observe, and it also helps me notice change, and not just you know bad change from climate change, but you know seasonal change and things. And just this mm. act of of trying to to notice more has has made me feel more connected to the landscape that I'm part of, and and made me appreciate it so much more. So. Um, Sometimes it can feel like a bit of a chore, but yeah, keeping a nature diary is a lovely way. Yeah, I like that. And I think even if you're just writing the odd bullet point or something like that, it is making you internally notice stuff and you'll keep that. You'll be surprised how much you keep that in when you get to the following year and you go, oh, wait a minute, that was a bit earlier this year or that's the same time. Do you know what I mean? That that will definitely help. Um, Charlie, thanks so much for being on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I think we still kept it light throughout. (laughs) I'm not crying, so it's a start. And I I hope... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I hope everyone we're still intact just about yeah <laughs> yeah well thank you so much for being on the show my man it was lovely to chat to you and keep up uh, fighting the good fight thank you very much and, and likewise your show is so important and I hope it goes on forever thank you so much man cheers
Thanks again for listening, everyone. If you'd like to keep up to date with the guests that have appeared in today's Into the Wild episode, then you can do so on social media. Their tags are in the write-up of this episode. Also, you can follow us on social media at Into the Wild Pod on Twitter and Into the Wild Podcast on Instagram. And if you'd like to get in touch about Into the Wild or ask any questions or suggest any ideas for some episodes, you can email me at intothewildpod at gmail.com. A quick note to say that all the opinions and expressions expressed in today's episode belong to the person that said them and do not represent those opinions held by Into the Wild or anyone that we work with or are affiliated with. Into the Wild always aims to be a free show, however running it is not free. If you'd like to support us and say thanks, then you can do so by buying me a coffee. Our Ko-fi link is in the write-up of this episode. Until next time, keep well, stay safe and live the good life.